Well, cool. Genesis 14. It's been fun to hang with everyone this morning and, and worship alongside you and uh, just excited to see what God has in store for us as we look to his word today. Uh, I just want to introduce myself a little bit because I don't know anyone in this room. As, as he said, I'm from the village over in Flower Mound. I'm originally from Southern California. We've been in Texas for three years now, and, and I serve as a group's minister over there, and we are actually just entering into the church planting process as well to go back to California and plant a church, so it's really fun to be in this place today and, and step into uh, what is likely our future, and uh, I'm married to Katie. We have a two-year-old daughter, Peyton, and a three-month-old son, Owen, so we're in that early stage. I see a baby being passed around over there, uh, so you guys are probably in the fog like, like I am this morning as well. Uh, and, and I do want to uh, just kind of intro a little bit as, as where we find ourselves at, as a church body. Uh, we are going through a sermon series, uh, or mission is going through a sermon series, looking at the patriarchs of the faith. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and, and looking at, at these men and their faith looking forward. So a pre-Christ faith, before Christ condescended, came in the flesh and revealed himself, these men, Hebrews would tell us, were still heroes of the faith. And so I want to look at Genesis 14 today, glean from it some truths about Abram's faith. This is before he was named Abraham. This is when he was Abram. I want to look at his faith, hold a mirror up to our own lives, and examine our own faith. And so really, this is sort of like a family meeting. We are God's family. We're not like family. We are family when we are all in Christ Jesus. And so I want us to talk amongst ourselves, and I, I want to speak to you today and look at our faith, examine our faith, do surgery on our faith. And for those of you who are not believing, my prayer is that you will walk out believing. And I want to caveat before, I, I'm going to read through the whole chapter. I want to caveat that I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and there are a lot of names and locations in this chapter. I can hardly read English, so uh, we're going to struggle through this together. I'm going to pronounce some things wrong. Just go with it, okay? So let's go ahead and read the entirety of Genesis 14 together. God's word says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedalamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings, were, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, uh, Sh uh, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedalamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedalamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, golly, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavah Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and, the Am and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedalamar, king of Edom, or Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. 
So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is King's Valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We want to lift it high today. And through your word, we want to know you. We want to know Jesus. We want to magnify the name of Jesus. Would you encourage us today? Would you correct us today? Would you transform us today? Would we walk out of this place today confident not in ourselves, but confident in you alone? As we look to Abram, uh, we thank you for his example in the faith, his steadfast faith in you. And I pray that we would look more like him today as we walk out in our own faith. And so we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. So human history spans centuries and continents and languages and people groups. Uh, Some periods in human history have experienced great wealth, while other periods have experienced great famine. Others have experienced great feast, while others were starving in other continents. Some languages have dominated our records, while other languages continue to die off and become extinct. The differences in humans and nations and people groups is vast and innumerable. We can't count the ways in which we are different. But there are some strains that unite all of humanity. And one strain we see on display in Genesis 14, and that is war. We We have countries battling in war right now. The Olympic season we find ourselves in right now has an underlying theme of the strife between North and South Korea. We, as the United States, became a country after the Revolutionary War. We stayed a country after the Civil War. Our our ancient records are dominated with headlines of war, kinsman war, tribal war, clansman war, continental war, civil war, all kinds of war. War, even though it is divisive, unites human history. And so here in Genesis 14, we have the first account of war in our ancient records. Of any ancient record discovered or found or preserved, this is the first war. And archaeological finds would confirm down to the detail what we see in here, cities and locations and types of war through the relics and the the weaponry and the decimated cities that we find here. Now I tell you that because 
God's word is to be trusted, but I also tell you that because we see in Abram that we have a dueling faith. We have a warring faith, a battling faith, a fighting faith. This is the faith that we have been called into. I mean, let's just rehearse Abram's life to this point. So back in Genesis 12, he receives a promise from God. I will give you a nation. I will give you a people. Your descendants will be blessed in you. You won't even be able to count the number of people who are of your household. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. Because of you, they will be blessed. And then very quickly after that, what do we see in Abram's life? He battles with Egypt. He battles with Pharaoh. He battles with his wife, Sarah. He battles with his nephew, Lot. And now here in Genesis 14, we see him fighting against these kings. Now, these kings, they weren't chumps. They had well-trained armies. They, were, they had good weapons, probably weapons that were far beyond uh, many in that region and in that time. They controlled that whole region around the Dead Sea. They controlled the people. They controlled the wealth. And their trail of victory continues to blaze on as they capture the four kings. And in the midst of that, they get Abram's nephew Lot, his family, his possession, his kinsmen. And so one of the people of Sodom escapes and he goes and finds Abram hanging out by the oaks. And he says to him, your nephew and his household have been captured. And here, without hesitation, we see Abram entering into the battle because Abram knew that in his faith that he has been called into, he would be tested. It would be a battling faith. It would be a warring faith. The only way he could confidently enter into this battle is that he would be confident in God alone. See, God had promised him in Genesis chapter 12 that I would give you all of these things into your hands. And Abram knew that God's word was good, it was trustworthy, and it was secure because God himself is good, God is trustworthy, and God is secure. So Abram could confidently step into this battle to go recover his nephew Lot because he trusted God and his promise alone. Now, we can, we can probably, uh, based upon tracing Abram's life, determine his state uh, while he was hanging by the oaks of Mamre. He was probably tired. He was probably a little bit weary. He was probably exhausted. He was probably over all of these battles and all of these fights he was experiencing. But what he did when he heard that Lot was captured was got up and entered into the battle again. So I have a question for everyone in the room. How many of you, those of you who are believers, can say, since the moment I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I have not experienced one battle? That's right. Everyone's telling the truth in here. I was hoping, unless, unless you came to faith like three seconds ago, um, you've had a battle. So four seconds ago, you've been fighting, right? Because we live in a Genesis 3 world. Right, Genesis 1 and 2, God and his people in perfection in Eden. Sin enters into the picture and fractures everything. And now we live in a broken world full of sin and suffering and pain and sorrow. And when we become believers in Jesus Christ, our eternity is secure and we're working back towards Eden, but we're in the now and the not yet where that's not here in its fullness yet. So we still experience pain and suffering and strife and wars in our faith. 
So some of us probably walked in this morning, I know I did, facing some big battles in our lives. Perhaps it's a diagnosis. Perhaps it's a family member who's rejecting the faith. Perhaps it's strife in the home. Whatever it is, just know that the faith you have been called into is a faith that is a battling faith. And Paul describes that for us in Ephesians 6, 12, when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are caught up in a cosmic battle. And for the believer, here is what is true for you. God has already won that battle. Sin, death, and the devil have been defeated for you. There is no kind of tension between God and Satan where we don't know who's going to win this thing. The battle has been won on Calvary 2,000 years ago. And we can confidently step into that knowing that the ultimate war is won. So our daily battles can be won too. And so how do we battle I want to trace a a moment in Moses' life to kind of describe how we can battle in our daily wars, duel in the faith. So the people of God go into captivity in Egypt, and God sends Moses to bring his people out of captivity and return them back to the promised land. And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And Moses says, you better let my people go. And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, this is paraphrase, right? Um, I'm not going to let your people go. And so God sends 10 plagues on the people, or on, on, on the land of Egypt and the people of Egypt. And finally, at the end of it, Pharaoh says, okay, as long as your God will stop this, go. And so Moses grabs Israel and he starts making his way back to the promised land. And shortly after they leave, Pharaoh starts thinking, man, that was not very smart. Those were our people resources. They were the ones who were accomplishing all these great feats for us by their man hours and their man power. So Egypt begins chasing them back down. And so the people of Israel are walking towards the promised land and the chariots and the horses of Egypt begins to hunker down on them. And then they come on the edge of the Red Sea and they see Egypt coming, coming. And they see the promised land in the distance, but they see this great sea in between them knowing that I won't be able to get across this and we're going to return back to captivity. And Moses says this in Exodus 14 to the people of Israel. Fear not, Stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. This is how God has designed us to fight in the faith. By not relying on self and pressing in to God. And so what does this actually mean? How do we fight day to day in the faith? Well, we should be responsible for what we're called to be responsible for. We should kill our sin and cultivate holiness. It means we trust in Christ alone, find our joy in Christ alone, not the circumstances we are facing. It means that we fight from our knees, praying and pleading with God to come through for us. It means we stick our noses in the Bible to know what God has promised us so that we can stand on those promises. This isn't some kind of chest-pounding, flag-waving, machismo type of fighting, but rather fighting through faith, 
fighting through letting someone else fight for you. The ultimate defeat of sin, the devil, and the death came not through conquering warfare, but through death itself on the cross. It's power in weakness, life through death. And so we duel by letting Christ fight on our behalf. We have a dueling faith like Abram. Next, as we can see in Genesis 14, we have a dangerous faith. We have a dangerous faith that we've been called into. So do a mental exercise with me. What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done in your life? I sat in my office uh, a couple weeks ago for about 20 minutes just kind of doing this to myself, and I had to filter through all the youthful, kind of immature and ignorant things I did. Uh, just, just one story I like to tell because it was just so dumb. Um, I was in Cambodia when I was 17 in the capital city, Phnom Penh. I was wearing American flag board shorts and a T-shirt that had a to- piece of toilet paper on it that said, that's how I roll. Um, and I was running... Th- <laughs> I was running through the streets of Phnom Penh chanting, USA, USA. I mean, come on. What was I, like, just, that wasn't dangerous. That was stupid. And so here's what I came up with. And and you'll find out something about me because we don't know each other. You'll find out I'm not all that risky or dangerous as a person. Uh, When I was in eighth grade, I went off the coast of Catalina, uh, out off the west coast, and did a night dive where we looked for sharks. We, we tried to go out and find some sharks to swim, swim with the sharks. I was probably, you know, trying to impress some ladies um, who weren't all that impressed with me and they had no reason to be, um, but I'd still stepped into it. Uh, and, and here's why I stepped into it. Because that afternoon as they were doing the signups for the night dive, the instructor got up there and he said, we've been in operation for 20 years and we've never had an attack. Uh, We've actually never even encountered an aggressive shark in our 20 years in operation. Uh, The sharks are so used to humans being around them that they're really not bothered. As long as you don't provoke them, it'll all be okay. And we have some bait really far off the coast that will draw out the bigger, more aggressive sharks so they won't really be around us. We won't see them. And if if, uh, one of the sharks begin to show some weird behavioral patterns, uh, we have some systems in place to make sure you're safe and you'll get out of the water. So really what I was stepping into wasn't all that dangerous. But what Christ has told us in his word is that what we are stepping into as believers is a dangerous faith. We see this on display in Abram's life, and we see this on display all throughout the New Testament. Here's some things that Jesus has promised you as a disciple. He has said, if we follow him, we will share in his sufferings. He has said that if we follow him, we will be persecuted like he was persecuted. He has said that if we follow him, we must die to self. And he has said, before you follow me, count the cost of following me. We just need to ask our brothers and sisters across the world, in in Yemen or North Korea or China or Venezuela, the dangerous cost of claiming Christ Jesus. And it sounds really, really dangerous. Everything that Jesus describes to us If Jesus has not also promised this to us, he has promised to us your eternity is secure because he is secure. Anything that you face now is but light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. You cannot be harmed apart from his sovereign good and kind hand, his permissive will. And to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
So our dangerous faith really is not all that dangerous. What we have been called into. But what are some implications of living like Abram lived? First, our primary desire is to glorify God in all things before we are concerned with our own comfort. Next, safety and security are good gifts from the Lord, but they should not be worshipped. As long as the Lord has given you a life of safety and security, you should sit in that and enjoy that and receive that. But as that begins to press away and be peeled away, don't resist that. Third, everything in our lives, our jobs, our homes, our networks, our friends, our neighbors, are to be stewarded for the sake of the extension of God's kingdom, not our own. So we know that as we seek to proclaim Christ, we will be persecuted. But we step into that for the sake of God's kingdom, the sake of God's name, knowing that our eternity is secure in Christ Jesus. I mean, we see Abram beautifully display this in the story this morning. He abandons his comfortable hangout by the oaks. He had just finished battling. He's probably just trying to relax a little bit, have a drink of water. And then someone reports to him that his whiny nephew Lot had been captured again, and it's his job to go get him. So he puts his own safety and security and comfort to the side, grabs 318 of his men, and he goes right back into the battle, putting himself and his men at risk in the process. In the same way, but a greater, more glorious way, we see Jesus Christ do the same thing for us. Because the truth is, we are Lot. We are the ones who have abandoned and rebelled from God and we have been trapped in the world. Sin, death, and the devil and are the evil kings that have trapped us, taken hold of us, and gone and put us in captivity. And Jesus, the Son of God, leaves his throne on high and in his great rescue, he leaves the comfort of his Father, throwing his own safety and security out the window and he does so to advance his own kingdom. He defeats our enemies and he rescues us and returns us back to our God and Father. So let me ask again, what is the most dangerous thing you have ever done? And this time, let me answer. Believer, it is living as if God has not set you on mission. And unbeliever, it is rejecting the security of faith in Christ Jesus. So first, we have a dueling faith. Next, we have a dangerous faith. Third, we have a distinct faith. Yeah, they'll all start with D's. Easy to remember. So we're going to continue looking at verses 11 through 16. But this time we're going to look a little more closely at Lot compared to Abram. So back in chapter 13, Lot and Abram were moving together towards God's call, following what God had promised them to. But then Lot's focus began to move away from the direction they were heading onto his own kingdom in his own name. And so they're looking at two different areas, Abram and Lot. And, and Lot looks over at the area that looks like paradise and, and it looks promising. It's, it's flowing. Um, it's pretty. It's got good opportunity and resources for him. And, and, and looks out the other direction and he sees what, what looks less promising. Maybe it's desertous. Maybe it, it looks dry and barren. And Lot looks to his uncle who's been protecting him the whole way and says, yeah, I'll take that side. I'll, I'll go that way. You, you can have that over there. 
And so they split, and Lot, in the process of going and pursuing his own interests, pitches his tent too close to the world, and he ends up getting enslaved by it. Abram did not, because Abram realized that his faith is a distinct faith. The life that God had called him into was to be countercultural and different. Lot abandoned that to tippy-toe on the line of the world, and it almost ended up getting him killed on multiple occasions. So when you hear the word distinct faith, you probably think weird. That's typically how we begin to process these things. Let me just kind of cool, cool our, our minds right now and say, if you were weird before you became a Christian, you're probably going to be weird after you became a Christian and if you're too cool for school or a rebel or whatever else before you came to Jesus, you're probably going to be like that after you came to know Jesus. Just be the most sanctified version of you, the most Christ-like version of you. But when I say live distinct, here's what I mean. Be uniquely different from the world. Here's an even simpler term. Be Christ-like. I mean, think about how Christ lived for a second most Jews were expecting Christ to come in and conquer Rome and conquer those who were controlling Jerusalem to gather God's people back through force and through the sword. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus won victory for God's people through his own death, through his own humility. And then Jesus, before, um, when he's talking with his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he gives us some very specific ways to live a uniquely di distinct faith. In the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew 5, Jesus says this to the disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, just think about how different that is by today's standards. Like, Jesus isn't saying, be aggressive and be competitive and put others down for the sake of your own gain. But rather, he's saying, be poor in spirit. Be meek and gentle and mild. Be merciful to others. Don't seek revenge. Be pure in heart. Go and make peace. Be a peacemaker. This is so different from the standards that we find ourselves in today. And then in John 13, the farewell discourse, Jesus is staring the cross in the faith, or face and he's sitting around the table with his disciples. Judas had just been dismissed and he says to him, the first things out of his mouth, the things he says to his disciples are, people will know you are my disciples by how you love one another, by how you serve one another. Our faith is to be so distinct that we are almost unrecognizable by those who don't know Jesus Christ. And here's the thing about that. It is beautiful. It's attractive. It's alluring. So let me give you three really, really simple ways to have a distinct faith in today's society. In an age of disconnection, when technology is killing relationships, be present. 
Look someone in the eye. Get to know them. This is distinct. In an age of distrust, where authority has continued to betray us, have integrity. Let your yes be yes. Honor others. Care for others. Create trust. And then in an age of volatility, when anger and outrage are the only proper response to anything, be gentle. Be kind. Be loving. Choose not anger, but choose gentility. Seriously, these three simple steps will, throw the dis- or will show the distinctness of your Christian faith, just like Abram. And the more you look and live like Christ, the more fulfilled and joyful you will be. The promise in the Beatitudes, happy, blessed, joyful, you will inherit the kingdom if you live like Christ. The, the world always overpromises and underdelivers. Just do a study of Lot's life to figure that out. The kingdom of God always delivers on what it promises. And God has promised us life in the full, now and forevermore. So we know that our faith is dueling, it's dangerous, it's distinct. We've seen that from Abram. But we're going to also figure out that our faith is ultimately dependent. Let's look back over verses 17 through 24. After his, Abram, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So, In verses 17 through 24, we see this beautiful picture of compare and contrast. There's two different kings presenting two different offers to Abram, and Abram's response to both of them is one of dependence on God most high. So Abram has just finished defeating the enemies of God and the enemies in these kings. And, and, and this one of the kings, the king of Sodom, approaches Abram and tries to strike a transactional business contract with him. In verse 21, we see it. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So by ancient Near East customs, here's sort of what's happening. Abram has defeated and captured all of the the, the possessions and the people and the resources in the land and brought it back to himself. And the king of Sodom is trying to put Abram in a compromised position by offering to take the people off his hands, but letting him keep the resources. So it's all, it would almost be like today you, you try to go buy a small business. Let's, let's say it's a, a computer programming business. And, and you go to strike the contract with the, owner, the current owner of the business. And he writes up in the contract, okay, you can have all of our technology, our computers, our servers. You can have our managers, our technicians, our programmers. Heck, you can even have this office building that we meet in. But I'm going to keep all the people. I'm going to keep all the people. You wouldn't sign that deal. 
because you know that all of that technology and all of the resources uh, would be fruitless without the people operating those things. And so uh, king of Sodom says to Abram, here, you can have all the resources, but you can't have the people. And Abram says to him, nope. Really, he basically just says to him, I will not be in debt to man because God most high has promised to give me all of my needs and I am dependent solely upon him. This is Abram's dependent faith. So we must ask ourselves, where have I begun to put myself into the hands of the king of Sodom instead of standing on the promises of God? It's really easy for us to drift into independence mode. It's so easy to get these offers and to accept them because we are tired and weary from being dependent on God. We want easier results and quicker results and simpler results than God oftentimes offers us. But God moves slowly. Because in the process of fulfilling his promise to you, he also wants to make you more holy. He wants to make you more happy in him. He wants you to realize it's not his gifts that matter, but it's the giver of the gifts that matter. And so we wait. And we must know that his delay is not his denial But so often in his delay, we begin to look to these other offers of the world and we step into those, moving away from dependence on him to dependence on self. But then we see this other king present as well, Melchizedek. Melchizedek offers to Abram something else as well. And we see Abram respond in dependence. Again, let's look back through verses 18 through 20. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek is one of the more mysterious but but really important figures in biblical history. He shows up here in Psalm 110 and Hebrews chapter chapters 5 through 7. That's it. But we can glean some facts from him here. We know that his name, Melchizedek, literally means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem, it says. The root word there is shalom or peace. He is both a priest and a king in the line of God. He brings with him bread and wine as an offering to give to Abram. He also comes to Abram bestowing blessing upon him from God. And then Abram responds to Melchizedek with a tithe. So Melchizedek in this account, as Hebrews 7 would tell us, is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. He's a type of Christ. And here is what we see in Jesus, the the truer and better Melchizedek, that Jesus is the only true king of righteousness, the perfect one. That Jesus' kingdom is ruled by shalom. It is ruled by peace. That Jesus is our perfect priest and king. His role is to represent us to God and represent God to us. That Jesus gave his body and blood as our provisional bread and wine. That in Jesus, we have the ultimate blessing from God most high, and that is God himself. And that our worshipful and rightful response to Jesus is to give our lives as a tithe and offering to him. 
So this interaction between Abram and Melchizedek show us how we should interact with Jesus in dependent faith, rejecting the offers from the kings of Sodom of this world and receiving the offer that Jesus gives us. Here is that offer. We must realize our own unworthiness, but the righteousness that he will give us. We must realize the chaos that sin brings into our lives, but the peace that he freely gives. We must realize that the provision of bread and wine is his broken body and shed blood in our place for what we deserved. We must know that his mediating work on the cross, through that work, we can enter into the presence of God again. And that in him, we received the promised blessing from God most high. And most importantly, our response is a dependence response. Sacrifice, submission, offering our hearts and lives. And here is the truth about our faith and what was true about Abram's faith. It is our dependence in faith that undergirds every other aspect of our faith. Abram knew full well that he was dependent on God alone because God had told him that. And then from that place, could he start living dangerously or or could he fight freely or could he uh, have a distinct from the world faith? Because your dependence reveals who you are in Christ and the outflowing of who you are is what you do. And believer, here is some things that God has said about you if you are in Christ Jesus, about who you are. You are God's chosen one. Because you are united to Christ, you receive everything from the Father that Christ receives, the inheritance of Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus, when God looks on you, he sees not your past, your sin, your suffering, your failure, but when he looks on you, he says to you, you are my beloved. In you, I am well pleased. You can know because you are united to Christ that you will love and worship and be before God forever and nothing can change that. Your perfect priest and king, Jesus Christ, is representing you, representing you before God, interceding before God for you at all times. And he prays perfect prayers every time in your place. And you are called a saint, believer. And all of this depends on the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And from that place flows your ability to fight in the faith. Because if you know all of these things are true about you, then you can confidently step into your battles knowing that what I'm facing now, Christ has already won the ultimate victory. You can know that if I live different from the world and others around me persecute me, it doesn't really matter because God Most High has already called me His child. You can know that anything that I face that is dangerous, even though I will have fear, we know that his perfect love will cast out our fears. And so we get to live a life abandoned to worshiping God, following God in all things, just as we see in Abram. If you flip that order, if you begin to think how you act or how you live for God will enter you into salvation, then you begin to get into a works-based salvation, and that is a false gospel. Your working faith flows from your dependent faith. So believers, my hope for you today is that this word will be a mirror into your heart for you to begin to know where am I rejecting dependence? 
Where am I rejecting relying on God? Where am I trusting in self or my spouse or others? And then to begin to do the work of returning back to utter dependence on God. And for the unbelievers in the room this morning, everything that I said about God's people is not true of you. What is true of you is that in your sin, you have rejected God and His good design for the world. You have abandoned Him in the way Lot abandoned Abram. And in your rejection of Him, you receive the rightful wrath of God and ultimately eternal damnation. But God enters the picture and freely offers through His Son, Jesus Christ, faith. Your only job is to say, I repent. I'm turning from my sin. I'm repenting from my rejection. And I'm returning to you, God, because I need you. And so my hope for the unbelievers in this room is that you will receive that faith today. It is a free gift of grace. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to work unto it. You don't have to make yourself right before others. You just need to press into God and say, I need you, God. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your unrighteousness as you confess it before him. So we saw this morning Abram's distinct faith, Abram's dangerous faith, Abram's dueling faith, but ultimately Abram's dependent faith. Let us walk out of this place today with a little bit of a limp knowing we are dependent on God.